You're listening to the Scottish Football Forums podcast, the home of Scottish football banter. Hello and welcome to Season 10, Episode 8 of Scottish Football Forums podcast. I'm John and I'm joined by a special guest, man of many clubs as a player and current Stenis Beer Manager, David Irons. How are you doing, David? Good, thanks, John. Try and remember some career. All right, I've got the Wikipedia up, so I'll try and remind you whatever best I can. Um, so as we've, we've said, uh, you're the current Stenis Beer Manager. Um, How's, how have things been since the um, since football stopped back on the 13th of March? Ah, it's been difficult for everybody, hasn't it? It's, um, I never, I've never expected to experience anything like this in my, my lifetime, never mind my footballing career. So it's it's been a very interesting six months uh, in all aspects. But hopefully we're... Um, coming to the end, maybe a bit of light at the end of the tunnel and we're looking to get started in the next three or four weeks. So yeah. uh, it'd be nice to get back. Yeah, definitely. I mean, you've obviously been keeping yourself busy because you're a police officer. Um, how much has your role changed um, as a police officer having to deal with um, you know, house parties, for example, having to break them up? Have you had many of them? Um, unfortunately, I've not experienced too many of them in my area. Um I'm actually involved in the schools more than the, okay. the other aspects of the community. So um, I've got got to keep the school kids under uh, under control. So no, but I mean, in general, the majority of people in the in this part of the world that I live in, live in, and hopefully most of the rest of the country, that they do adhere to their recommendations. There's obviously one or two who maybe overstep the mark now and again, but in general, it's it's been it's been okay. Yeah, good. And the school's obviously been back to a, a big thing. Um, so have you had to do much in terms of educating for, for this coming in? You know, kids kids adapt very quickly. And uh, that was one thing I would I would, uh, I would would say about the, the secondary schools that I'm involved in. They really have taken in their stride, the pupils. Um, I'm quite sure even though they probably wouldn't admit it, I'm quite sure most of them are glad to be back. I think it was a difficult time for the young people in, in, the, in the country, not having education, not having social contact, not having their sport. You know, and I think in general, they've behaved very, very well. And I think they deserve a wee bit of slack when it comes to, you know, what they do, what they've been doing since uh, they've gone back to school. But I think the majority of them understand that they still have responsibility and, and uh, they've taken it on board, so I can't really speak highly enough for the, the, the pupils in the schools that I'm involved in. Yeah, that's good. I mean, it has been a testing time mentally for me. my five-year-old. Um, it's been he's missed it a lot of um, after-school clubs and uh, you know summer um, events. Also, none of them happened, so he was glad to get back to school. And so were we. Um, but yeah, um, yeah. their mental health is just uh, so important, and we just got home. Things get better as well because it is, isn't an easy time. I know. It's, I, I really do feel for the young people. As I say, it's it must have been so difficult for them um, try to understand, try to cope with something that you know, as adults, 
it was hard enough for us, but for the young people, it must have been even more difficult because their life's about, you know, being involved with their pals, going to school, you know, having a having a routine in their life and, you know, mixing with their pals. But to have all of that cut off without probably understanding some of them, it depends what age they are, but, you know, some of them will probably quite not understand why this is happening. Yeah. You know, and it's, as I say, I do feel for them, but it's good to have them all back and hopefully... Um, We'll not, we'll not have to go into that lockdown phase ever again. Yeah, well, fingers crossed it doesn't go that far. Um, but um, obviously, we're, we're trying to get uh, crowds back into the football. Um, we had two games at the weekend. Um, Matty Aberdeen was one that piloted in the Ross County. But the, but this weekend, it's not happening. How concerning is that for you, um, given the fact that you've got um, Betfred Cup and then league fixtures that coming up that... You, I mean, clubs like yourselves depend more in fan income than the top flight. Yeah, I think that's there is a real genuine concern that you know we that we're not going to get the fans back in. I think obviously the 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 hope was that come October time, the, the kind of restrictions would have been relaxed and we would be able to get fans in. But you're right that with the two games last weekend, as far as I'm aware, they proved successful. Mm-hmm. Um, 300 fans at Stenhouse would be a great crowd. <laughs> um, but I'm re- uh, hopefully we can get crowds back because the lower leagues, it is, a, it is a lifeline, you know, having fans in. And from a financial point of view, if we don't get fans in at our level, League One, League Two, even Championship level, I think there could be real, it'll be a real struggle for some clubs to survive. Yeah, because the thing is, I mean, um, the, the leagues were cut down to 27 games with an October start in hope that crowds would be back. So it must be a real um, blow for you guys if um, you're told that you can't start with, you know, with fans. Because um, uh, and you've always had your training put back by week because um, events up in the top flight um, with Aberdeen and the ball and goal situation. Um, it's it seems as though you guys are getting punished for um, other things. I know it's. Uh, listen, I, I think we understand where we are in the, when it comes to the the food chain in Scottish football. The lower leagues are well down in the list of priorities. However, you know, for clubs like Stennis Muir and a lot of the smaller clubs in, in the lower leagues, they are a big part of the local community. And you know, there's a lot of really genuine, you know, diehards who are missing their football. But you've got to. You, kind of balance that with the, the, the whole aspect of the coronavirus and the implications it can have and the, you know the, the dangers that, that does you know exist within the, the virus so I think most clubs are, are kind of quite relaxed about you know, if we don't get fans in at the start hopefully maybe come the end of October again November the Scottish Government might allow us to have some fans through the door yeah, let's let's hope that happens. Um, and with regards to your, um, how's how's training been um, since you since you've been back? I mean, have you had to do COVID tests yourself as well? We've uh, the only kind of testing we've had to do is actually temperature tests. We haven't actually had to, you know, go through the the horrible experience of the actual swab testing. Because um, obviously, the part time clubs we're coming from different environments, you know, different working environments, whether it's, you know, the like myself in the police, we've got BT, we've got business guys, we've got teachers, we've got, you know, guys coming from all aspects of the community. So 
I think the whole thought of trying to test these guys is going to be really difficult, but um, they've got recommendations and regulations that we try and put, we'll have asked them to follow and touch wood up until now, we've been okay. But then you look at Annan and Athletic and uh, Hamilton, I mean, they've obviously got some positive cases, St Mern. My worry is that this is going to continue for a while yet and some clubs are going to at some point going to have positive testing. And if the league fixtures have started for the lower leagues, well, obviously the Premier has started. What happens if five or six year boys go down, get tested positive? Can you fulfil the fixtures? I don't know. I hope, hopefully the SFA will have, and the SPFL will have things in place to, you know, to make sure that we can cope with the fact that there may be fixtures postponed. But I'm pretty convinced it will happen at some stage. Yeah, I think there's a worry that um, the fixtures might not all get fulfilled this season. I mean, I'm still um, surprised that there's a 30-game season planned for the Premier League because it's not going to be a normal season. There's going to be some cancellations. I mean, we've had um, the, a couple of Aberdeen and Celtic games cancelled by the government because of also what's happened. Then you've got the weather to think about, which will inevitably postpone a few games in the lower league. So this is a really testing season. And... Um, They've, they've not put in the... I mean, everyone's signed up for the Betfred Cup, but there's still been no talk about the Challenge Cup. I mean, is that even going to go ahead? Um, there's been nothing around it. If that goes ahead, it becomes even more of a um, ask for everyone. Yeah, well, I, I think... Correct me if I'm wrong, I think that the Challenge Cup isn't going ahead this year. Is it not? I'm sure my... ...say that to me a couple of months ago that they've done the Cup this year. Yeah. So, because they just couldn't get those, they couldn't get a fixture. Not a surprise. They couldn't get them uh, into the fixture list. So, uh, so, but you're right, there's going to be cancellations for weather. Other, As I say, the COVID's going to have some impact, I'm sure, at some stage. Um, so it's going to be a very, potentially a very disjointed season. But, you know, uh, try and be optimistic and just hope that, you know, we get we get through it. Yeah, and, and for yourselves, um you were you were in eighth position um, when the league was uh, stopped last season. Um, and I'm sure your aspirations will be to try and improve. In last season, I see you've signed four players. Um, how are preparations going? Are you confident you will finish um, a bit higher this season? Yeah, I'm, uh, I'm pleased with the, the signings that were brought into the club. We've added uh, some bit of quality. Um, obviously, last season was a wee bit of a, a roller coaster ride with. A decent start when we took over then with a really poor run but then just prior to COVID um, affecting the, the league we were actually starting to pick up some decent results so yeah I think obviously my plan and my hope and my aspirations are to, to get Stennis Muir up to the the upper echelons of League 2 shall we say so um, still I'd like to bring in two or three players but the squad I've got so far is, is looking okay Oh, that's good. I mean, because um, obviously last season was a, a tough season uh, for the club had just been relegated. Then Cove Rangers came into the league and um, do very well. Edinburgh City have come up in recent seasons and proved more of a handful. Uh, is there a worry that um, I know? Obviously, that there was the Celtic Hearts um, and Bro Rangers denied the opportunity to get promoted. That 
must be some kind of relief from your point of view because that's another couple of ambitious clubs. Is there a worry that those new clubs from lower leagues might come in and and do something? I wouldn't say it's a worry. Um, I think it's. I think it has to. Be, I think it's part and parcel of the what should be a pyramid system in Scottish football. I think you've just got to you accept the challenges there from these lower league clubs. They want to try and get into the senior leagues, and quite rightly so. Um, I do think. I think the uh, the lower leagues will look very different in five, ten years' time. I think you'll see a number of those clubs coming through and getting into the League One and Two. Um, you've mentioned Cove have come in, Edinburgh City have come in. Um, I'm sure Kelty, East Kilbride, Auchinleck, you know, teams like that. Probably if we sit here and have a chat in ten years' time, they'd probably be in, in the Scottish Senior League. So, But as far as Dennis Muir can say, our aim is to to meet the challenge head on and uh, make sure that we're at the, the top end of League Two this year and hopefully you know, challenging for the, for promotion. What made you want to go back? Because I see that you were there seven years ago and left in the summer of 2012. I just felt I'd, I left for uh, personal and professional reasons. I was, I'd just joined the police and um, the, the shift pattern and the the work demands didn't actually allow me to, to be able to fulfil every Saturday and training night. So I, I didn't feel it was right for me not to be at the games every week, not to be able to get to training. So uh, I stood down from my role as manager, reluctantly, albeit because um, I was I really enjoyed my time there. And uh, you know we were just starting to look like a, a good side. We were challenging at the top end of League One. Um, so unfortunately, I had to resign, but the, I left in really good terms with the, the club. And when the opportunity came round in the September last year um, to help the club out, albeit on just a one-match basis against Brechin, ironically enough, um, I helped out, and you know things progressed quickly from there. They asked me if I'd like to be considered for the role. And, with my personal position and in, in my work, allowing me to to be off most weekends or every weekend, football became a another an attractive option once again. So I was very fortunate to be offered the role again and delighted to take it on. Excellent, and I, I hope it goes well. So I'm going to take you back to um, your playing career now. Um, so it started off with your then hometown club of Queen of South, and you moved on to. Kayla Rovers quickly after that. What was life like, um, you know, progressing through the um, the junior system? It probably made me um, or gave me a chance to play. Um, the, my career, I was at Queen of South when I just finished school um, and actually I went away to university. So that's why there's a bit of a gap in my, my playing career. I went away down to Newcastle Uni and played down there. I was uh, doing a sports degree, so I played there. Um non-league plus with the university team and then that's when I came back up to Keller Rovers. I was actually still at, I was doing a postgraduate actually and uh, Kello offered to pay my train fare home every weekend so um, I had a, a great a really good cup season and a bit with Kello. Um, at that time it was it was a it was a breeding ground for players there was no academy systems it's in the senior clubs 
you know, they had first team in reserves. No, the boys' club system kind of worked. There was S forms, and that was it. But the junior junior scene was a real hotbed for you know for the senior clubs to pick up players. And um, I made a bit of a name for myself at Kelo when United came looking, and um, I had a trial. We played at Airdrie one night on trial, and uh, George Caldwell, who was a manager at Air at the time liked what he saw and gave me a chance to sign for air. So that was in 84, 1984. So well before your time, John, I'm sure. Yeah. Um, I was born in 81, so I wouldn't have remembered you at Air United. Um, but uh, you were, <laughs> so, um, you were, um, you had George Colbert to start with and then you um, get Alan McLeod as a manager. Um, everyone's obviously heard of Ali. Um, you know, just, just sum up the character he was um, as a manager. Although it was, I see from um, it was a mixed team because there was a relegation. Yeah, yeah, we were struggling when Ali came over. We had, I mean, the first season I was there, we had a good time. We did quite well here and finished. I think we were fifth and fourth or fifth. There was only three leagues in those days, so yeah, um, we had a good season. And the following season, we started poorly. George called lost his job, and Ali Ali McLeod came in, and you know. I've, I've, I'm obviously of the kind of age that I remember Darling McLeod at Argentina and Scotland and Aberdeen prior to that and he certainly came with a a very good reputation and well known and he'd been at Air previously I think he started at Air in his manager career before he moved on and um, I think he was coming, coming home as he said but he was a larger than life car as I'm sure that everybody knows of him will probably I accept and understand as far as I was a bit bemused about some of the styles of training and stuff but um, we've all got our own weird and wonderful ways of training and coaching and um, I think because he was a World Cup manager I expected something really different but you know it was actually very much down to earth and very simple kept the game very simple and uh, yeah, it was it was certainly it was certainly an experience playing under Ali McLeod. Yeah, that must that must have been great. Um, and then from there you go into Clyde Bank for a season. Um, Clyde Bank, you know, were a team that fluttered in between Premier League and First Division in those days. And on that season that you were, I mean, you guys like Kennedy, um, who we had on our past podcast, who was great. Um, Jim Gallagher. Um, so you were pretty close to getting promoted that season, um, but just what was um, playing for Clyde Bank like? Clyde Bank were a, a, a brilliant club. Yeah, some of the names you mentioned, yeah, I mean, Ken, Ken Eady is an absolute legend. Jim Gallagher, guys like Mark Trainer with uh, Chick Chanley played there, Paul Harvey, you know, Stuart Ald. The, the list of names is endless, but there was it was a really really well-run club. It was probably a bit before its time. They operated in the, the Steedman family ran the club and they bought and sold players and basically put the squad together for the coach. And at my time, it was a guy, Sammy Henderson, who was a brilliant guy. Um, his job was basically train the team Tuesday, Thursday night. Jack Steedman would pick the team on a Saturday for, for when I joined, we were actually in the Premier League. My debut was at Ibrox and uh, I was... Like I thought I'd made it into the big time. I turned up the eyebrow flag and the boots for my debut and they wouldn't let me in the front door. They didn't believe I was a player. So, um, a brilliant experience at Clyde Bank. I mean, the, 
Jack Steedman's model was really, really effective and it bought and sold players. It bought me, for example, he paid 20 grand for me from Air United and sold me to Dunfermline for 87 and a half thousand pounds. You know, he's same with boys like John Davis, and Paul Harvey, you know, Owen Coyle, you know, loads of players that he bought and sold um, for a good profit. So, uh, he was a very shrewd businessman, Jack, but really he knew his players and uh, he's quite back in a really good reputation for being a good footballing side in those days. Yeah, they definitely were. I mean, I, I remember them in the first year first followed football was they reached the Scottish Cup semi-final um, beaten by Celtic in the day um, and they gave us a good game in the Scottish Cup in 92-93 um, um, it was just a shame what ended up happening to them um, Neil had pretty much getting out of business and then bought over by Airdrie but it's good to see them making a comeback in the juniors or West of Scotland League as it now is I ended up back to Clydebank um at the end of my career and I was there just a couple of seasons before they went bust so it was a, sad to see them disappear out of the Scottish game but although it's good to have them they're making an attempt to get back into the, the senior levels where they reformed Clydebank Juniors um, but now they've changed status now so it's Clydebank FC and it's actually a, a, a friend of mine who's managing Gordon Moffat's manager now so right. um, hopefully he'll be successful there yeah, good luck to the, the Bankies this season in that league, although um, one of the other guys that does this podcast is an Oaken like fan, so I won't say that too loud. Oh, um, <laughs> so you mentioned that you got to Dunfermline, playing under Jim Leishman, another one of the great characters of Scottish football, um, just somewhat what he was like as a manager. I think there's a theme going to develop through my career with yes, the managers that I played under, were characters, but yeah, Jim Leishman... Um, I owe Jim Leishman a lot. He gave me the opportunity to, to fulfil a, a dream of playing, being a full-time football player. Because up until, up until my time at Clyde Bank, obviously I was still a part-time working. Um, but Jim Leishman gave me the chance to get into full-time football with Dunfermline. And, and when I signed, it was a real thrill. I was club record signing. I was, they were in the Premier League. They were The crowds were, you know... 16,000 at East End Park against the old firm. There were, you know, it was a real buzz about the town. You know, there was a, they were really on the on the upward slope, uh, and I signed there and had four four unbelievable years at the club. Um, I signed just towards the end of that season, um, but only had sort of eight nine games to go, and unfortunately we get relegated. But we bounced back in one the first division championship the following season and uh kind of just added to Jim Leishman's legendary status at Dunfermline but it was these memories and the players I played with have you know live with me for, for the rest of my days. You know, I'd, Ray Farningham's probably one of my best friends, Ross Jack, unfortunately we lost Norrie McCarthy, John Watson, uh, Paul Smith, you know, Graham Robertson. I could list names go on but the club, it was just an absolutely brilliant club to play for and I thoroughly enjoyed my time there. But um, it ended kind of strangely. Jim Leishman, for all he'd been a success, there became a bit of a split in the board and Jim was asked to decide whether he wanted to move upstairs or remain manager and he decided to move on and Ian Renault took over 
And uh, I think Ian probably didn't realise what he was taking on in terms of the support and the popularity that Jim Leishman had, not just at the club, but in the town and the and Fife basically. And I think Ian, who was a really good coach, um, just maybe took on more than he could he could handle. And he was uh, he was at, he was sacked later on, but I had left by then. But um, as a club, it was just a, a great four years that I had there. Yeah, that's tremendous. Did um, Leishman ever read out any poetry as team talk? Aye, but we all switched off as soon as he started reciting. <laughs> His, uh, this reputation for poems, they were awful, and they really were. I mean, <laughs> there was a young man from Dundee, you know, it's that kind of rubbish poems that he'd come out with, but um, he was a character, and he still is to this day. I've seen him now and again, and he's... Uh, He's just such a, a likeable guy and, you know, he did so much for the town and the club and he deserves to be held in such high esteem. He really yeah. did. And as I say, I, I'll never, I can't thank him enough for giving me the opportunity to be a full-time footballer. Yeah, definitely. I mean, that, that first um, that first full season you had in the, cha- um, what's now the first division, I don't know what it was, the first division now the championship, yeah. you beat Falkirk by two points um, to promotion. That must have been even sweeter, beating um, your rivals to promotion. Yeah, it was that when I signed for Dunfermline, I didn't realise the rivalry between Dunfermline and Falkirk. It was so intense, um, and yeah, we, that season it was uh, there were big games. I remember we played. I think we played Falkirk round about Christmas time in uh, East End Park, and the Falkirk fans had all these balloons with Jim Leishman's face on them, you know. And it was like it was it was quite funny because well, to be Jim Leishman was a bit of a balloon at times anyway, so it was quite. Quite, uh, quite appropriate, but no, it was funny because we, you know, the players were making a, a joke of it, and he took it in great, in great terms. Anyways, he always did, but it was, uh, yeah, that rivalry was so intense. But I think that day, you were talking twelve, thirteen thousand at East End Park and Brockville as well was always packed to the hill. You know, that was a was probably, I don't know if you remember going to Brockville, but it was a really yes, tight ground and um, it was really tight and. It was jam. I think we played them in a midweek, and it was so it was really packed out. And there were some good games, and uh, yeah, we're fortunate we finished with two points clear of them. But it was it was a nervy finish, as uh, I can recall. Yeah, no doubt one of the highlights of your career. And um, when you're in the Premier League, finish eighth two years in a row, which is a a decent um, return for in a 10-team league and during that time um, at a time where foreigners come to Scottish football were very rare Svan Cosma comes in and ends up moving on to Liverpool what was he like as a player? Svan really really good footballer um, goes without saying again he's he's a held in his legendary status in Dunfermline um, really nice guy really nice guy and I think he, he's one of those foreigners that he knew more than he would let on you know he kind of made out he didn't really understand English but he, he did um, but it was the start of a real significant change in the club you know at that time pretty much we were all on the same level financially then you bring in these big foreigners and they were making a lot more money and you know they changed the whole wage structure to accommodate the foreign players and plus I'm not saying it's a bad thing for the footballers but you know it did it did uh, create a wee bit of a split in terms of you know what players were expecting or hoping to get financially. But um 
he was a top player, no question about that. Um, he added a wee bit, of, wee bit of uh, class to this, the the team. Um, well, as you say, we finished eighth, two years in the top. We had some really good players anyway, but this fan just gave us a wee bit extra at times. Although other times he'd go missing, um, but I think we put, we accepted that. That was just the way he was. But um, no, he was a a really nice guy. Really nice guy, and as I say, to get a move to Liverpool, you know, how many players go to Liverpool from Scotland? Not many, um, yeah. not in those days anyway. But um, unfortunately for this fan, it maybe didn't quite work out, and I don't think, I think he's looked on as probably one of the worst signings Liverpool had, which is which is sad to read. But yeah. um, I think he probably went at a difficult time for. I think Graham Soonis signed him actually. I think he obviously knew him from his time at Rangers, and I think he took him down. And um, he maybe—I don't know this whole story, but I don't think he maybe got a, a real opportunity to establish himself because he was a Hungarian international. So you know, he wasn't—he was no dud, you know. So, um, but I was a, a a really good guy, and as I say, one of Ben Fenland's best ever players, as far yeah. as the fans and that are concerned. Yeah, definitely. It's um, I think Liverpool at that point were um, it wasn't a good period for them for for a couple of years. Um, but yeah. that's another story. Um, but <laughs> yeah, what was your highlights? What what was your um main highlight from your time at Dunfermline? I think winning the championship was obviously the. I think that was my first medal I'd won at a senior level, so that's that was a huge highlight. And you know, there was other. Personally, I won quite a number of Player of the Year awards in my last season there. Um, beating Celtic at Parkhead twice, and that was a that was a that was always good to do. And you know, with some decent cup runs as well. But I think my, my it'd be difficult to just pinpoint one or two highlights. Yeah. I think, but just the way I was appreciated at the club and the way I've you know, the fans took to me and. Um, the friendships and everything that I made during my time there these are probably the highlights that I had when I look back Yeah, I guess so, so you then um, go back down a division for one season at Partick um, because Partick then get promoted and we talk about characters um, John, John Lambie um, you know the, you know, we're, we're laughing as we're mentioning his name I think that sums up the legacy that he's left in the game um, just if you can sum up the best way to describe John Lambie <laughs> Oh, um, there's various various expressions. Maverick, um, a one-off, um, unique are some of the words that would immediately spring to mind. But uh, again, he's another manager that believed in me as a player and gave me a platform that I probably got to a stage in my career that I'd never expected to. And in terms of, you know, people identifying me as a good player and you know I was getting talked about as an international player and all sorts of stuff so John Lambie gave me that by simply turning in, turning me into a centre back as opposed to a midfield player and you know I've, I still look at some of my cuttings and my mum's got a scrapbook and uh, some of the quotes coming through John Lambie and talking about me as an international and you know my debut at Parkhead when we beat Celtic I'd never played centre back in my life, and we'd turn up at Parkhead, and he names a team, and he didn't name it in a system. He just named one to eleven, and then the boys are kind of 
looking about and saying, well, he's not named any, he's only named one centre-back in that list. And I think I remember somebody saying, Gaffer, who's playing at the back today? And he kind of paused and looked about and it was as if he was looking for somebody and he stopped and looked at me and says, Irons, you can effing play there. And I'm like, what? And it was like, people will say it was a stroke of genius, but I, I don't know. It was like, he just decided to play me there for some reason and we beat, beat Celtic at Parkhead first time in many, many years. And uh, I stayed there for the rest of my time at Thistle. And as I say, he saw something in me and he believed in me and he gave me an opportunity to, to play in the Premier League as a centre-back, which I never thought I'd ever do. So, um, good times. Yeah, it was uh, Jerry Collins his assistant at that time as well. Jerry, I Jerry was his, and I knew I played with Jerry at, at uh, Air United, and uh, and Jerry was a big influence on me as well. He was he was one of those players that was really hard on you when you played during the games, mm-hmm. but you know he did it for the right reasons, and uh, it took me a wee while to realise why he kept getting on at me. But it's because Jerry believed in me as well. So I think between Jerry and John Lambie, they both. Kind of believed in me, and that, as I say, I just seemed to flourish at that time. Yeah, and is that um, you normally hear about the good cop bad cop relationship? Is that bad cop bad cop? <laughs> <laughs> bad cop mad cop. I uh, definitely they were. Uh, I mean, they'd fight like cat and dog. They did in between each other. You know, it was, you'd come in. I'm not saying any specific game, but I can admit a number of times you'd come in at half time and they'd start arguing with each other. And the boys would just be sitting and talking to ourselves and, and the, then the, the bell would go to go back out in the second half and they hadn't even spoken to us. They'd been too busy arguing with each other, you know. But it's, uh, you know, John Lambie, he achieved so much. If you look at his record as a manager, it's absolutely incredible. And a bit like Jim Leishman, you know, that they're, they're probably the first to admit they weren't coaches. But what they were, they, they, they just knew... They just knew good players, and they knew players that, to to fit into a system, and uh, they just let you go and play and express yourself. And John Lambie certainly did that. You know, he, he, if you look around, his, look at his history. He'd, he'd signed boys that had been around, maybe journeymen boys that had, hadn't quite made it at other clubs, and he'd sign them, and they would be a huge success at Thistle. You know, guys like I'm talking Willie Jimison, who'd probably thought he was finished, came to Thistle and. Bobby Law, who was there for Chick Chanley, obviously is one of his favourites. Ian Cameron, one of the Aberdeen, never really played that much at Aberdeen regularly, but he came to Thistle and he kicked on again. Jerry Britton, George Shaw, you know, boys like that. Um, Ray Farningham again, Ray and I joined together, but there's, I think the list goes on and on for the, the type of player that he, he could, he just seemed to know the right player for the, to fit into the team. Yeah, you mentioned Ian Cameron came from Aberdeen. There was another, I listened to this story, it was Chick Chandler in Lambie before he passed away, sadly. And uh, he bought a boy from Aberdeen um, called Andy Gibson. And he says, I signed the, signed the wrong player, meant to sign Andy Roddy. <laughs> <laughs> oh, there's a funny, I mean, one of the, I don't know if I get time for this one, but he, he tried to sign Frank McAvenny mm. when he was at West Ham. He was coming back up the road and uh, he came in got his photograph taken with John Lambie and it was about to announce it in the press but the last minute I think Billy McNeil hijacked it and took him back to Celtic so the next morning we were at training and we're sitting 
in the dressing room, ready to go to training, and John Lambie came in, right, let's go. And nobody moved. And he went out and came back, what's wrong? I said, oh, well, not, not everybody's here yet, Gaffer. And he's like looking about the dressing room and, and says, what do you mean everybody's here? He says, no, we're still waiting on Frank turning up. And he, <laughs> he just lost the plot. All right, he started swearing. And he'll never be back. He'll never be welcome at this club ever again. And it was just funny. But um, he's, he was a, a real character. He really was. Yeah, I think it was um, Liam Brady that signs McAvenny at that point. Um, just was it Liam? Aye, sorry, yeah, aye, Liam aye. Brady. Yeah. yeah, it was McNeil the first time to be fair because he had two spells yeah, at Celtic. Aye, yeah. aye, that's right. Yeah, who knows what uh, you might so have done I... with uh, Mac in the team. But, um, <laughs> I mean, in the Premier League, you more than held your own. You finished eighth out of a 12-team league, um, stayed up comfortably um, in the end, beating Rangers, I think, to be, to stay up. And you, yeah, won, yeah. you won a trophy that um, the, that's no longer around, the Tenant Sixes, the last of, of its kind. That's it. I keep saying Thistle are still the holders of the ten and sixes. It was the last ever ten and sixes competition. It, I'd love to see that brought brilliant. back. It was great. I mean, it was the place was full. SEC was a sellout over the two nights, you know. And um, well, you probably know the format. There was league uh, kind of many group stages, and then semi final and final. And we we played air during the final, and uh, we we were. Crown champions beating Airdrie and it was great and I actually got player of the tournament as well so it was a double kind of two trophies on the same night so and I think it was quite a decent prize money as well I'm sure I'm sure we got a holiday out of it Lambie took us away to uh, Magaluf at the end of the season based on the fact we'd got a won a trophy so it, it was just like you say it was a brilliant tournament and it's sad it's sad it's no longer uh, in existence because I, I think everybody you speak to who experienced it will, will say how good it was you know so it's probably not going to come back this year but you never know maybe some down the line it might come back should have a a legends tenant sixes bring back all the old players yeah definitely I think the tenant sixes would have been a good a fairer way to settle the, the leagues this season but won't go there um <laughs> <laughs> did you score in the final? I did, die. I thought that. I yeah, die. I watched it back as part of my research. Yeah, scored a wee chip to keeper. Can believe I chipped a keeper in a six-a-side tournament, but I it was, I it's good, good night, good, uh, good memories again. Yeah, fantastic times. Um, and and then you move on again to to St. Johnson. Doesn't quite work out in the fact you get relegated. Um, that that season just. Sum up the disappointment of that that spell overall. Is they didn't oh, get uh, they didn't get close to promotion either. No, it was a I had a really tough time at St Johnson. I ruptured my Achilles tendon on my debut. I signed for Thistle, and I think Jeff Brown will probably still have nightmares. He paid a hundred thousand pounds, and I lasted twenty minutes in the first season. I ruptured my Achilles against Dundee United twenty minutes into my debut, and then. Uh, I did it again at the Christmas time so I never kicked a ball for the whole season and unfortunately I had to sit in the stand and watch the club get relegated so it was uh, a really really difficult time um, personally and obviously for the club the club were great they actually sent me down to Lillyshaw to get rehabbed and you know real, they really looked after me um, and 
if I don't think if, if it hadn't been for the way they looked after me, I might have struggled to get back to to playing again. But they were brilliant with me, and uh, I'll never can't thank them enough for the way they treated me. But from a player perspective, the following season, the time I came back, John McClelland, who had been the manager, had been sacked, and Paul Sturrock came in, and uh, it took him a took him a couple of seasons to get the club up. But it, I think uh, they obviously did get up and they've, they've been pretty successful since then. They've stayed in the Premier League for a for a good few years. But um, aye, it was a tough time for me personally and you know, I struggled. Probably wasn't really Paul Sturrock's type of player. Um, although he made me a captain for a season and then um, shouldn't laugh, but there was an incident with Paul Sturrock. He collapsed in the touchline against Dundee. It seems to be Dundee United again, but mm. he collapsed in the touchline and I was playing that, that day and uh, the after the weekend, he'd been taken to hospital. I get basically get told that it was my fault he had a heart attack because he didn't. Have, I kept trying to dribble out the back with the ball, and uh, I was basically told he does. He's um, I'll no play after when he comes back. So I think that was the end of my St. Johnson career. But um, the club as a whole were brilliant. Can't again another very fortunate to be at a club that really looked after people and. Um, as I say, the time I had there, I probably didn't do myself justice. Yeah, and after that, you, you've mentioned that you also went back to Clyde Bank and had a wee stint as as manager as well, but it just wasn't the same place because the um, finances just hit hard. Yeah, but, and they'd sold the old Kilbowie had been sold, and we were actually ground sharing with Dumbarton right. in the last season, uh, and. I went back there when an old fellow player, the first time round, Brian Wright was actually player coach. And Brian, a great guy, works tirelessly for the club. And we were struggling. And Brian kind of got sacked. And they asked Ken, Kenny Brannigan and myself to kind of take over the last three or four games, which we did, but unsuccessfully, obviously. And the club got relegated. And that, that kind of signalled the end of my well, I thought it was the end of my playing career, but um, I got a job as a development officer with the SFA at the end of that season. So at that time, you weren't allowed to play and be a development officer. So I had to decide about you know, what I wanted to do and I had to stop playing. So that was the, kind of the first time I hung my boots up. Yeah, you made a um, brief return. I think I seen that you were at Annan, and then obviously you went to Gretna. Um, this was Gretna before Bruce Melson comes in. Then he comes yeah. in, and all of a sudden things transform. Just um, how did the journey start? Oh. <laughs> that was again. Uh, maybe I should write a book, but no, it was a. As you say, I, I kind of joined Gretna the week before our first ever league game. They just got into the league, ironically. Um, on the back of Clyde Bank going bust. Clyde Bank and Airdrie kind of got together. Clyde, Airdrie, well, I think Airdrie actually went... Airdrie went bust. Yeah. Went bust. They then bought Clyde Bank and then took Clyde Bank's place in the league, which meant there was a space for a, a team. Mm-hmm. Gretna were the successful applicant at that time. Uh, I was playing manager at Air United, uh, Annan, who were in the non-league, um, and the manager at Gretna at the time, Rowan, Rowan Alexander, um, approached me and asked if I'd be if I'd fancy helping them out and playing 
I thought I was too old, but Rowan thought of, thought better and asked me to sign. And um, I went and signed for them the week before our opening league game in League Two or League Three at the time. Um, so I signed. We played Morton in the very first game that Gretna had in the league, a one-one draw at uh, down at Gretna. And that season, I think we finished six. I was playing. The following season was the first kind of sign that there was possibility of a, a millionaire buying the club and taking over. Um, and at the end of that season, Brooks Myelson came in and decided just to totally, totally revolutionise Gretna Football Club. And it, I say, the rest history. And it was an unbelievable journey. Yeah, it is an unbelievable journey. I mean, I think Ryan Alexander doubled up as a groundsman as well. Um, at that time, yeah. I remember one of the documentaries, um, and then all of a sudden he's told, um, nah, forget the grass, we've got grass cutters for that. You should concentrate yeah. on being a manager. <laughs> and, uh, you know, you then get to the, well, I mean, the first um, promotion season, the third division, I think from outsiders' point of view, people were wondering, How's this team got? How's this team got money? I remember um, the one that sticks in my mind because I'm an Aberdeen supporter. Um, you signed Steve Tosh because Steve Aberdeen Tosh, offered him. I can't remember the figures, but I think it was some like three grand a week um, on a one-year deal. But Great offered them the same on a three-year deal, so he's obviously going to take that. Um, but did you ever wonder in the, in in the background whilst you're thinking, oh, we're we're doing well on the pitch? Were you also thinking, where's where's this money coming from um, for a village of three thousand people? Yeah, and I, th- I think looking back, we, I think we all get carried away with the in the euphoria and the, the success because, as you say, we won three successive promotions. Um, but at the time, it was like it was just like a, a journey that we got on and just didn't want to stop. You know, we we Brooks was an unbelievable person. You know, as a as a man. You know, his generosity was incredible, and I don't just mean financially. That he's just—he was such a likable person. His dream was just to own a football club. He just wanted, and he was there every single day. He'd be doing all sorts of things around the club. He was cutting the grass. He was making pre-match meals. You know, he just loved being around the players, and he loved being able to provide opportunities for people and. Away from the actual football inside, he set up, he did so much in the community. You know, he established, he'd set up coaching for schools free of charge. He did, you know, it's some of the things he did that just wasn't actually mentioned, but he actually employed a number of people out with, you know, from apart from the actual first team, he employed a lot of community coaches. It was just absolutely incredible. Um, I remember him telling me some millionaires like to buy a yacht he says I just want to enjoy my football and uh, you know he'd turn up you probably know the story but he'd go to games with his pals he wouldn't go into the boardroom he'd have his fish and chips from his favourite chippy on the way home you know and he wouldn't you know he, he just loved he was just a normal guy but to, to achieve what he did was just absolutely incredible you know and I, I, well, well there's no no getting away from the fact we'd never achieved it if it hadn't been for him but it still took a you can only beat what's in front of you but to get three successive promotions Rangers couldn't do that yeah. they failed and the, Gretna actually got through right through to the Premier League and unfortunately Brooks 
his health had deteriorated the year we got into the Premier League, so he didn't actually get the get to see too many of the games. Uh, and then obviously his health really took a turn for the worse, and um, he had a stroke and couldn't attend, couldn't come to games. His family decided enough was enough, and as I say, unfortunately he passed on. Uh, I think the following year, but he's, he gave. Stevie Toss is one, but he gave a number of people, you know, an incredible five, six years that, you know, from like Kenny Duker, David Bingham, Stevie Tosh, you know, Chris Innes, Alan Main, you know, myself, Rowan, you know, Gavin Skelton, Ryan McGuffey, they gave these guys, you know, things that we could only have dreamed of, you know, Scottish Cup final, playing in Europe, you know, who who on earth would have thought, as my dog's appeared, yes. who would have thought Gretton would ever appeared in the Scottish Cup final and to lose on penalty kicks to a Hearts team that had just been runners-up in the Premier League, you know, so that that in itself was an achievement and then obviously that, we got a, albeit a very brief appearance in the UEFA Cup the following season. It was just, it was brilliant. Yeah, tremendous memories. I mean, going back to the Scottish Cup final, you know, um, I mean, people can talk about the money um, about going through the leagues, but for a team like Gretna to get to Scottish Cup final is incredible. I mean, yeah, you didn't beat a Scottish Premier League side on the way, but you still beat, look, St. Byrne and Dundee are decent sides. Yeah. And you managed to, yeah. I mean, you beat Dundee comfortably in the semi-final. I mean, just, what was that like? I mean, because you obviously didn't get the chance to play in a Cup final as a player, so what was it like being able to be in one as a assistant manager? Oh, it was just things dreams are made of, you know, that the whole experience, the run up run up to the final that, you know, the we our seat we had won League Two. Um so our season had finished a couple of weeks before the actual cup final was played. So um the whole preparation from that time was just brilliant. We were inundated with ticket off you know, and the media were and then Brooks took us away in Marbella for a couple of days. And I, I remember we actually sat and watched Hearts. I think uh, it was a Hearts Hibs was the other semi final. Mm-hmm. And when, or was it, I can't remember. Whatever, I remember watching a game, it, what basically meant that Hearts had qualified for the Champions League. Cause they'd it was Hearts beating Aberdeen as I was at that Hearts game at Tynecastle. Yeah. So they beat us 1 0 and they qualified for. Um, so many years we're going to so qualify for Europe. We were in the UEFA Cup whether we won the cup or not and I remember the boy we were kind of had a night out on that in Marbella so um, but then the, the week leading up to the cup final and without a word of a lie I remember we stayed in East Kilbride on the Friday night and we we, we got the bus and the police escort down to Hamden there were fans on the on the road down actually not Gretna fans just people start, stopped and clapped us as we passed in the bus and then we got to Hamden the Hearts fans were actually clapping us. It was an, I've never experienced an atmosphere like that before. And, and the, Although we lost, obviously, we lost the game after it. We were walking around the pitch. The Hearts fans stood and clapped the Gretna players as they had a, a kind of lap of honour, if you like. And it was it was incredible. The atmosphere, I've never known anything like it. It was absolutely brilliant. And uh, although I wasn't a player, I did feel a big part of it as being the, the coach and Rowan and I, um, you know, we, we 
we really enjoyed the occasion. This, although we lost, it was it was quite a, a real honour to be the manager and assistant manager at a, at a Scottish Cup final. Yeah, you you gave it a good account. I mean, in the first half, Hearts looked as though they were going to dominate. They went one up. I mean, mm-hmm. what did you have to say at halftime to rally your troops to say, you're still in this, you still have a chance here? Well, that's exactly what we said. We When we got in at 1-0, we said to, we had, we'd set ourselves up in the first half not to be too open and expansive and just to, you know, just to contain Hearts. And when we got to halftime, the boys came in and... We, that was exactly the words that and I remember speaking to him I says, Right, we now go for it and we changed changed it slightly. Because we were still in the game, we went for it and we got ourselves back in it with a penalty kick. And uh, you know what, we were so close to winning that. David Graham, I don't know if you remember, went past Craig Gordon mm-hmm. and Robbie Nielsen made that unbelievable tackle. David I just thought David Graham was gonna put the ball in the net and Robbie Nielsen came from nowhere to to divert it away for a corner, but if we'd scored that, we were we were on top at that point. Hearts were really struggling. Paul Hartley gets off towards the end as well. Hearts were hanging on, and uh, it came to penalties. It became a lottery, obviously. And I remember Alan Main, the goalkeeper, saying he's going to dive the same way for every penalty because he was convinced that he'd save one of them. Unfortunately, Alan dived to his left, but every Hearts penalty went to the right so um, they scored and obviously our two two misses were two English players which we used to we laugh about it now we said we should have known that the English players always miss penalty kicks and shoot out so <laughs> but no Derek Townsley and Gavin Skelton both Gavin two brilliant guys and still friends to this day and Gavin's kind of followed on my he's assistant manager at Carlisle United and um Top top guy, and but he uh, he had to take the the responsibility of the last kick, and I felt I felt for Gavin, but um, no, that's that was a unbelievable day, it really was. Yeah, but probably a better day was um, before I come on to the Ross County game a year later. Um, there was the situation where you ended up taking over in charge because of um, you know Alexander. Basically, been asked to step yeah. down. Um, what what really what what actually happened that led to um, you know the team events that led to you taking over? And I appreciate if you can't go into too much. No, that's, I've I've absolutely nothing to hide on this, and it's something that you know I'm quite open about. Uh, Ron and I had a really good relationship as manager and co assistant manager. Um, we had a the. Club had kind of restructured and brought a director of football in, and Mick Wadsworth was a director of football. And Mick, who again, another guy I've got huge admiration for, and as a good friend, Mick was changing things. He had Mick was brought in to change Gretna in terms of trying to be a bit more self-sufficient because we couldn't rely on Brooks's money all the time. So we had to change the culture. We had to get you know the bigger. You know, the bigger earners had to be moved on. We had to try and, you know, cut the wage bill and, you know, with plan at the same time, plan to, with a plan to get into the Premier League. Um, so that was a double-edged sword, if you like. We had to get rid of our best players, but we still had to win the First Division Championship. So, um, Rowan and Mick clashed about that regularly. So there was a real, it was quite awkward. And as time went on, as the season went on, 
Um, Rowan was was struggling to deal with Mick, and Mick Mick was becoming more and more um, influential, shall we say, in decision makings around the club. So, but Rowan Rowan kind of rebelled against that, and it came to a head when we played Queen of the South at Gretna, and Queens beat us three nil. At home, and we, we called to a meeting that night after the game. Brooks asked us all to go down to his house, and myself, Mick Brown, and uh, Brooks sat. And Brooks just said, "Listen, things we need to change things." And um, Brown, you need to take a break. And he was genuine about it. He said, "You need to take a break." Um, and at that time. It was just about Rowan taking a break. Nothing else was said. So, but the next day, Brooks came to see me and said, "I want you to you take over the as manager on a temporary basis, just to try and get us through this period." Uh, that period lasted. Cause I think we had eight or nine games left, something like that. And uh, initially, I just thought it was going to be for one game, but it extended. It, it kept getting extended. So. I kept thinking round be back, but it never ever never came to that. And then lead up to the Ross County game. Um I'd been speaking to Rowan every week and speaking to him every every other day, keeping him updated of what was going on. He was phoning me, he was you know, he was he was stressed, there was no question about it. He was getting stressed out about the whole situation and Brooks generally felt he needed just to step back for a spell and recuperate, but something Something else happened that basically, when we won promotion, the whole thing changed again. And you know, I think Mick and Brooks had decided that the club were going to go in a different direction, and Round wasn't going to be part of that. And they put a lot of confidence in myself because we'd managed to get over the line at Dingwall, and uh, it then became nasty in terms of the legal side of things and. You know, Rowan, Rowan obviously, we both had five-year contracts. So Rowan obviously was entitled to his contract, getting paid up. But then things, you know, what these things are like, it just went on and on. And um, it became quite bitter and nasty. Rowan eventually was sacked and I was placed in charge of the first team. And it was difficult because Rowan and I had been really close and... You know, but uh, decisions were out of my hands. It was made above my pay, pay scale, so I had to do what was what I was asked to do and take over the club, take over the first team. And as I say, it was a huge challenge to be the manager in the Premier League, but it was one that I really looked forward to. Yeah. Albeit it was difficult, very difficult, playing at Fair Park every week as opposed to Gretna, you know, for a home game. So that. That in itself was a challenge, but you know it was it was a real tough tough season because we're trying to get rid of the big earners and bring in players who were weren't of the same quality, but still try and play in the Premier League. So it was it was difficult. Yeah, and it probably didn't help on that. I remember that first game when we lost four 0 to Falkirk, um, but Rowan turns up at the ground expecting to um, still lead the team. That must have been really uncomfortable for you. It was, and I remember. Um, I remember on, I was out in the warm up on the pitch, and one of my our next teammate and a friend, Alan Preston, who works for BBC, yeah. Alan came up to me and said, 
just to let you know, Rowan's at the front door. And I'm like, you're joking. And it was a wee bit awkward. Obviously, he didn't come in, but I think it was a bit of a... He said he'd been advised to buy his solicitors to turn up because he was still technically the manager, but that obviously hadn't been the case because he hadn't been at the... He hadn't been there for pre-season, so um, I get I get Rowan doing what he was advised to do, but it probably wasn't the best piece of advice he's been given in his career. But um, aye, it, it wasn't great, and it didn't obviously we didn't have a great start, and it really was a struggle from then on. Yeah, it definitely was, and uh, you. Before before everything blew up in, in Gretna's face, so to speak, you um, made the move to to go to Morton. And um, before you made that decision, had you had a big inkling in that you no know, things were going to um, come to a head with Gretna in terms of the, yeah. the money was going to stop? Yeah, I was I was basically told that the club wasn't going to survive, and we had to do everything we could. And I thought if I resigned and left, it would would free up my salary and. Derek Collins, who's my number two, the two of us left at the same time and we went to Morton, but I was basically told the club wasn't going to survive and that wasn't the only reason I left, you know, I obviously had to look after myself and my family, but primarily we were told that, listen, we need to cut, the only way this club will survive is if we reduce the staff and there was obviously Mick Modsworth and there was a number, number of coaches there that were able to, you know, stay on and take the first team but um, it was just a case of getting as many people out the door as quickly as they could in order to try and survive obviously we didn't survive they went into administration and although they did see out the fixtures it was just a you know there were dead men walking the club was finished and uh, it was a sad sad ending for what had been an unbelievable journey yeah, it's it's never it's never nice to see any club going out, but you'll always have that day um, at Digmall, um, the ninetieth minute. It looks as though promotion's not happening. James Grady pops up with the winning goal. Um, no matter what people say about Gretna, etc., you'll always have that as a manager. You know, would you say that's up there as your career highlight to date? Yeah, I think without doubt, it's as a manager and coach. You know, to win the championship and get the club into the Premier League was an incredible feat um, and one that I'm very proud of. The circumstances was typical Gretna. You know, it was a fairy tale stuff. I remember looking at my watch thinking we'd blown it just before we scored the the, the winner. And, uh, you know, because obviously you probably know the whole story, but our game had been delayed slightly. So St. Johnson's game had finished. And uh, we knew that, you know, they thought they'd get promoted. And as, as it stood at that time, we were drawing, so they were promoted. But then we've gone up the park and David Graham's controlled the ball at the back post and I thought he was going to hit it, but he made the right decision and he squared it and James Grady stuck it in the back of the net and then it was absolute bedlam after that. Um you probably remember Man City doing the kind of when they won the league Aguero's last minute goal. It was I remember sitting watching that and thinking, I've been there, done that. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it was uh, it was brilliant and uh, it was probably one of the most satisfying six, seven hour bus journey for Dingwall to Gretna that I've ever experienced. It was just sitting in the front of the bus with the first division trophy and I'm thinking, My God, what have we done? 
<laughs> trophy in one hand, a champagne in the other, or uh, beer, whatever. <laughs> Superb. Uh, it was. It was I, remember, I honestly remember thinking, God, this is just the start of it now. <laughs> what have we done? Caused a real problem for Brooks Myelson. But ugh, it was it was great, great times. It really was. Yeah, good stuff. You always have those memories. As we mentioned, you went to Morton the following season. Um, your first job was to try and keep them up in the division. You managed to do that on goal difference, mainly helped by beating your old two-year-old clubs, Partick and yeah. Dunfermline three 0 Um, just what, how big a satisfaction was that to keep them in the league? That was huge, like because when I took over, um, they were struggling, and you know that was the remit from the the old chairman to keep the club in the league. And you know I look back and it's very satisfying from a personal basis to manage to do that. And you know the last two games, Dunfermline at home winning three 0 and then going to Farhill and beating Thistle three 0 it was great, and it was felt like winning a league title at that time it was such a such an achievement to avoid relegation and you know and uh, I thought God, this is easy if thing will kick on now and the following season started really really badly and didn't win a single game in the first nine and then after that we went in a run I think we went in an unbeaten run for God knows how long and we got ourselves actually within touching distance of promotion um, but we kind of lost the last three or think, three or four games and ended up fifth. But you know, I thought I'd made quite a significant difference to Morton at that time. And um, obviously, the following season again we had a poor start, and I was I lost my job. But you know, I've, I look back in my time at Morton, I thought you know I did I did not a bad job. Um, but it was a difficult time and a, a difficult club to work at for various reasons. I think the, the old chairman who's no longer with us, um, he, he was a very demanding and liked to know everything and liked to, you know, like to make decisions, which I thought was more of a manager's decision. But um, I, it was his club, so I had to respect that. But it was a difficult, difficult club to work at, I must admit. Yeah, that, that's a shame they didn't quite work out. And then you go to Stensmuir, um first first season, you avoid um, the playoffs, so you stay stay up in the league. Season after that, you miss out in the playoffs by a point um, before you obviously, as you mentioned, um, took the decision to leave at that point. Um, just, but how much did you enjoy your first spell? I mean, obviously it must have meant something because you went back. Yeah, as I, I think I touched on it earlier with you. I, I absolutely loved my, first, my time at Stensmuir. The people... And they're still at the club to this day. The people there are just so welcoming and so helpful and so so supportive. Um, guys like Martin McNerney, who was a chairman at the time, he's still there. Um, he was he was just a first unbelievable chairman for me. But he supported me in every possible way. Um, Terry Bullock still there. The current chairman, Ian McMenemy, was on the board as well. They were just they just love their club and. And it's probably similar at most of the, the small clubs that the people that work on the committees or boards or whatever are just they're just fans, and they live in that they live for their club. You know they're there every night. I'm there. They're there till all hours of the night. You know just doing whatever they can for the club. And the time that I had, I, you know again it was a just took over. It was we were struggling. We kept them up last game of the season again. Up at I think it was Peterhead actually. We won three 0 So 
think there's a bit of a theme with my uh, manager career, but we stayed up that year and then we kicked on. And my biggest, one of my biggest disappointments is the fact we failed to get into the playoffs that following season. We just needed a point in the last game at home and we lost to, I think it was Forford beat us and uh, ended up fifth instead of fourth. And that would have been a, one heck of an achievement to be in the playoffs to get into the championship or the first division as it was. Yeah. Um, that, that, that was my ambition for the club and it still is, you know, albeit we're in League Two now. But he asked me why I went back at the start of our conversation. It was... I, had, I feel I've got unfinished business because I really want to try and repay the, the faith that Stenich Muir put in me as a manager and uh, hopefully I can do that this year. Yeah and we've obviously talked about you know about the Covid situation you know um, I know of a few clubs at Albion Rovers, Wraith Rovers, Dumbarton off the top of my head who did f- fundraising pages to get them through the summer. Um, was it some, How did um, Stenich Muir um, get through this tough period knowing that there was no games for well what's going to be seven months by the time you kick a ball yeah they've been really active in the community um, for a bit of publicity surrounding it as well they've, they've got together and worked really really hard in the local community delivering meals you know delivering prescriptions checking up in the elderly in the area so they've been really active and uh, you know they've got a real got a good bit of publicity out of that and I think on the back of that um, they've had a lot of support from the local community in terms of, you know, season ticket sales have gone up, you know, raffles, that kind of fundraising. So, you know, I think the the work that they've done in the community has paid off because the club has been supported really, really, really well by the, the local community. Oh, that's excellent to hear. Um, before I go into quite far, um, you're obviously not the only Irons that's in, um, in the media just now um, because your daughter's um, <laughs> carving out a very good media career for herself um, at BBC. How proud are you of um, the journey she's been going through? Hi, she's uh, she's done well. I'm uh, a proud dad of not just Amy, but yeah. um, <laughs> but I've got two others. But Amy's uh, she's done really well. Um, I'm surprised that. Amy and Lewis, actually, my my oldest son, he works for the SFA in the media. He was uh, he actually worked in media at Motherwell and he got headhunted to the SFA, so he works for the SFA in a similar role. Um, so I'm surprised after the two of them have followed in their dad's footsteps and been involved in sport. I'm surprised after seeing the, the state I've ended up in. Um, but you know, I'm proud of them both, and I'm, in fact, my third child, Luke, he's. Uh, He's followed in his brother's footsteps and he's a Motherwell fan, so he suffers every Saturday watching and supporting Motherwell. But uh, but no, Amy's uh, obviously, I, I kid her on, she used to, people used to say to Amy, say, oh, your dad's Davy Irons, now it's the other way around. I get to say, oh, your daughter's Amy Irons, you know, so she's a famous one now. So yeah. um, But no, the, the three of them are doing fine and they're all football fans. Um my wife, even's a football journey, my wife, she's a yeah. she's she's got to support whoever I'm with and whoever Luke supports. <laughs> so she's a mother will stroke Stennis Muir fan at the moment. What's well, gonna happen if Stennis Muir's gonna draw a mother on the cup then? Well that's I, I was look I was really longing that as obviously the Betfred Cup's coming up and Motherwell have they're not coming in because they're in Europe, but I was 
hoping we might have got Motherwell at some stage so we could have a, a real family feud to see who's supporting who, you know. But uh, you never know. If we get through the group stages, we might get Motherwell. Yeah, it's not an easy group. I mean, it's um, one, one common theme about all all the clubs in it is that they're all going to be playing in that official surface. Um, yeah. So yeah. yeah, but it's going to be a tough one. Livingston, Alla, yourselves, Airdrie, and Edinburgh. Um, fancy your chances of getting through, or is it just a pre-season exercise more than anything? I don't mean that any disrespected competition. No, I know. Just, no, that's where I know. you're at. I know. I know. It'd be easy to say. I just I will use it as pre-season, but um, um, but not. Well, we'll we'll obviously approach it in the best way we can, and listen, I'd love to love to get through it. We know it's going to be very very difficult. Livingston are obviously the favourites. Alawa Championship side, um, Al, uh, Airdrie. There's obviously big changes there, and they've done a lot of you know. There's a a real upsurge in their, the way they're going about their business at Airdrie, and then obviously Edinburgh City. They're uh, they they were really good last year, so. Yeah, it's going to be a very difficult group to get out of, but oh, listen, we'll we'll give it our best shot. No question about that. Yeah, good luck to you. Um, I, I want to also touch on the subject of mental health because this is something that's close to our podcast. Um, we were supposed to have a charity game for Back Onside this year and it got cancelled because of COVID. Um, and I was also reading about Amy's partner. Um, awful situation. How difficult um, was that? No, and getting Amy through what was a really, really tough time. Yeah, that, that was a really tough period from for Amy and um, the family. She, I was, I've never seen my daughter in broken as she was that day. Um, but I'm so proud of how she's coped with it and how she's fought to get herself back on track and how much she's she's learnt from it and supported other people who've been in similar situations. She's been really active in that and she's been going to groups, you know, charities, talking to people. Um, she was approached to do a documentary actually about, you know, mental health and that side of things and she's really keen to do that. Yes. But, uh, no, I've been really proud of her. Um, obviously, I was over heartbroken about with the circumstances and mm-hmm. it's something you never think you'll have to deal with as a parent but um, she's she's recovered I'm not saying she's ever forgotten it but she's certainly recovered and she's she's moved on in her life but I think she'll uh, certainly had a it's had a bearing on how the type of person she is but yeah definitely yeah actually she's very, she, she's very open about it. she's she will talk about it and she's I think one thing Amy's taken from it is that she believes that people it's better for people to talk about things and uh, you know she's she's keen for people to do that and to help in any way she can with the mental health aspect of, of suicide and the effects it has on has on people yeah she she spoke about um, being trolled um, you know by people on Instagram which is just unacceptable and actually sent her message uh, to give her best wishes she she replied to me so no I'm, I'm glad she's um, she's doing better and you wouldn't expect you wouldn't expect to get over something like that quickly but um no good on her first speaking out because I think that is so important I mean the message it's okay not to be okay has become more prevalent and um I mean your guys um your your footballers must have been going through a, an uncertain phase because um, you know no football and that's the lifeblood of their game. We hear a lot about young um, the back on side charity talk about a lot of footballers reaching out to them 
Um, so I hope their mental health is okay as well. Yeah, I mean, I think it's kind of twofold in my life. I obviously deal with a lot of mental health issues in my professional role in the police and uh, obviously with the football as well. And it is, it's so, such a big part of you know everybody's lives now. And you know, mental health has become more and more prevalent in all aspects. And I see players, from a player's point of view, you know, they just expect, when I played, there was just, oh, you'd be a man, you know, just get on with things. But now there's there's so much more things to contend with. And, uh, you know, they talk about the mental side of sport and how you prepare properly. But, you know, we need to be, I think we need to, we need to be prepared to talk to players more and understand what motivates them, what worries they've got, what concerns they've got. Because if, if they're not right, how do we expect them to go and play on a Saturday? You know, if they've got issues that, you know, they're, they're not able to speak about or they've got worries, you know, and, and that's, as a manager, I, I try and speak to my players and get to know them a bit better and understand what what drives them, you know, what, what worries them, you know, what what motivates them. And the brain is such a powerful thing. You know, as I say, if, if we can't get players' heads right, how can we expect them to perform on the pitch? You know, and they've got to deal with so much more in terms of social media, you know, they kind of, they're under the spotlight, you know, they get abused, they get criticised, you know, and, and then we just expect young men to deal with it. It's not as easy as that. No, exactly. Um, yeah, social media, it's a, it's a good and a bad thing. You know, it was meant to bring yeah. um, people together, but unfortunately there's people that take it that bit far. And um, yeah, I mean, f- from your point of view as a, as a coach, you know, how much extra um, do you need to take in, you know, having to be almost like a second counsellor as well as being a manager and coach? It varies from, you know, from player to player. Some players are happy to come and sit and talk to you. Some players just want to, you know, just they deal with it in their own way. But I think from a, you know, we spoke earlier about the characters in football with Jim Leishman's and John Lambie's. They didn't really know, and that's not a criticism, they didn't no. know my, what I was like away from football. They didn't know, you know, what family I had or in they they were just concerned about me as a footballer. Whereas now I think it's different. I think you need to get the best out of your players. You need to understand them. You need to know a wee bit more about them, and you know appreciate if they've got other issues. In a, in a part time basis, they've all got other issues to deal with. They've got their workplace. They've got their families, and I keep saying to them, football. The most important aspect is your your family and your work comes first. Football, unfortunately for part-time players, football's got to be third, you know. So, and that's, you know, from being a full-time footballer, that's different. Full-time, obviously, your family, but that is their workplace. So, you know, they have to be able to, we have to understand that football's not the most, albeit on a Saturday we try and make it, it is, but, you know, from... Monday to Friday, they've got a lot of other things to contend and deal with about football. So it's uh, they're juggling a lot of things as a manager and a coach, you know. And you just hope that they all stay up and don't fall down too many times. 
Yeah, definitely. Um, yeah, let's. I mean, there's obviously a lot more for you to contend with, um, but um, and hope your players are well prepared for this new season coming up. Um, I'm just going to round off with a couple of. Um, well, it's normally quite fair questions, but. Um, we've nicknamed it the slow fire questions because it's taken us long enough <laughs> to ask them if we go through too many Probably. of them. So, um, first of all, um, what's your favourite beer or wine? Didn't drink actually, but um, probably uh, my wife likes Prosecco, so I've had a few Proseccos in my time, so I have to say Prosecco. Prosecco. <laughs> An interesting choice. Um, what's. Um, if you you say you you say you listen to podcast mainly now, but before before um, podcast, what would you most listen to in the car? Massive Springsteen fan, so he's he's up he's a big part of my life. I've seen him so many times. I'm still to this day watch his YouTube stuff. I'm just a, a bit of a Springsteen geek, so aye, no question about that. Nice. Um, from your time as a player, um, who had the worst dress sense? The worst dress sense, I've got to say Ray Farlingham. He had a pair of these brogue shoes that he used to wear and uh, <laughs> he used to get ripped for them. But um, Plus, I've got to mention him, he's my best mate in football, so Ray Farlingham. Yeah, good stuff. Um, what was, what's the f- um, best dressing room, dressing room prank that you've either been involved in or witnessed? Um, gosh. Probably, maybe not quite a dressing room prank, but it was um, when we were, we were down at Blackpool for a, a week during the season with Lambie, with Thistle. Um, John Lambie was, he was going somewhere and the boys had put his car up on bricks and he didn't realise they were on bricks and he jumped in the car and started the engine trying to drive off and it never moved. And he's, the engine's revving up and he's never moving. So... That was absolutely hilarious. It really was. It was, <laughs> and he jumps out of the car. He's looking about, like, what the heck's going on here? The boy, we're all hanging out the window in the, the hotel, laughing our heads off. So, not quite a dressing room prank, but it was a yeah. prank. So it, that was funny. That was yeah. really funny. But who was the brave soul that performed that one? Or you're not allowed to say. Oh, there was a few. Jerry Britton. Who's now chief executive, Patrick Thistle, Jerry Britton, uh, Ray Farlingham, um, Ray Farlingham, Jerry Britton, Geordie uh, Shaw, and Bobby Law were part of the famous four that did that. Um, I'll stand up in court and swear on that one. <laughs> so that um, was funny. I think see that every one of the squad were laughing about it. So I think. Everybody will claim to be part of it, but they were the four that came up with the idea. So it was it was absolutely hilarious. <laughs> it was just the fact he walked past the car, he never noticed it was on. <laughs> oh, that is hilarious! I'm actually picturing this scene now. <laughs> um, so. Um, <laughs> Oh, that is a good one. Um, so, who was your who was your toughest opponent from your time? Toughest opponent. Uh, I used to have nightmares playing against Trevor Stephen and Gary Stephen at Rangers. Um, I was a left. I played left midfield, and they were the right side of Rangers. And they were two World Cup, England World Cup players that were just abs. They were like 
Gary Stephen was so quick. Trevor Stephen was such a good player, and it was like always felt I was two against one. So I they were the probably the my toughest opponents in my time. Well, what was your um, what was your, your the best goal that you've scored? Best goal that I scored. Um, I scored a, a goal for Clyde Bank against Clyde at Fair Hill, and um, I got the, I got a throw in for Chick Charnley just at the half line, and I just went and beat. Every, I think I beat about eight players and stuck it in the back of the net. It was like I was going to say Messi esque, but I'm never that good. But um, I'm not, at that time, I was playing with so much confidence that that's the best goal I've scored. Yeah, unfortunately, oh. you pro- unfortunately, probably won't find that goal on YouTube. Um, so we we'll just need to take your word for it. Um, so last question. Um, I, th- I think I mentioned I was going to bring this up. Um, name my best eleven from your time as a player, and good luck with this. Your best manager as well. Best eleven. Um, probably I've got to go with Ian Westwater as a goalie. Um, I'm going to go with. Players that I've played with, obviously. So, Ian Westwood. That's what I mean, sorry. Best. Um, um, aye, best player. Uh, my back four um, fullback, Mark Trainer, who played at Clyde Bank in St Johnston. Yeah. Um, Centre backs, Stuart Old, who was a Clyde Bank. He was, he was so under it. He was an absolutely terrific centre half, Clyde Bank. Norrie McCarthy. From Dunfermline, I'm so sadly missed. And my left back, um, I'm going to go with Gavin Skelton from Gretna. Um, midfield, Ray Farmingham, got to say Ray. Um, Jerry McCabe from Clydebank, who was such a good football player. He used to win the player of the year every year in the first division. Um, how he never played at a higher level beyond me. But um, Chick Chanley, because Chick, I think Chick was part of the reason I got a move. When he was at Clyde Bank, he just set me up with goals all the time. So he was a big part of getting a move. And... Uh, ooh, difficult one. Probably probably David Bingham, midfield. Mm. Um, again, really good, great football player. Up front, I'll go with Ken Eady. Again, Clyde Bang. Yeah, June has, so that, that evens it out. Oh, well, that evens out. And uh, Ross Jack at Dunfermline. He's a good striker too. Um, best, best manager... If I could combine Lambie, Leishman and Ali McLeod, then <laughs> you're, you're perfect mad manager. Um, but uh, if I had to pick one, probably Jim Leishman because he gave me that opportunity to be a full-time footballer. So, um, aye, go with him. Oh, that's that's a fair enough team um, and good choice of manager too. No, listen, <laughs> David, th- thank you very much for your time. Um, really appreciate it and all the best to um, yourself and Stennis for the upcoming season and hope it's not disrupted too much by other issues off the pitch that we're all having to deal with. Yeah, 
and um, regards to your family uh, too. Likewise, John, it's been a pleasure and thanks for giving me the opportunity to, to have a chat with you. And yeah. All the best. Yeah, pleasure's ours, David. Thank you. Take care. Thanks, John. All the best. Bye-bye. Bye. Thank you.